The reality is that blackness, the state of being black has been criminalized in this country. Crime quickly became a tool of social control, labeling one as criminal and thus unleashing the horrors of the prison industrial complex allowed for the objectives of systemic oppression to reign supreme. Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it. Dream radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering the status quo in our quest for social transformation. Join us on this journey. Let's dream. Hey y'all, it's Aurelius. I'll be a host on today's podcast. What is crime? Who is criminal? What actions dignify criminality? So as to not bury the lead, crime is a social construct. It's made up, a myth. You've been lied to. You've been told that the law of the United States is the highest moral standing we have. The truth is, is that crime is not an objective term for all things wrong in our society. Crime is truthfully more about social deviance. Deviance from what Audre Lord calls the mythical norm. This figure that embodies the gleaning of power and privilege from every social identity category imaginable. Crime is about upholding a white supremacist power structure. Let me explain what I mean. If crime were real, then the 45th president of these United States would be cast as the criminal he is, accused by over a dozen women and minors of sexual violence, having broken countless tax laws, and most recently asking a state official in Georgia to create tens of thousands of votes from thin air in his favor, as well as inciting a riot endangering the lives of some of the top officials in the US government, as well as a sacred property that is the Capitol built by enslaved people on stolen land of this former beacon of democracy. Those laws broken are much bigger offenses than say a poor person stealing from a grocery store to feed themselves and their children. And yet who ends up behind bars? The 45th occupant of the White House will not spend a day behind those bars. Why? Because this system was created to keep his interest in the fore. This system referred to as the justice system, was built to uphold the interests of the ruling class, of wealthy white people, to protect their property, their belongings, of which included black bodies. Crime in actuality has been used to round up black and brown bodies to uphold a social hierarchy and capitalist system that rests as its core principle the subservience of those same black and brown bodies. During the lynching era, countless false accusations of newfound crime were wielded against black men, which justified this form of racial terror. In the psyche of white Americans in these decades was that black people were prone to violence. They just couldn't help themselves. The same sentiment remains today. It was the reason black people needed to be shackled for centuries. Legal slavery was no longer acceptable in the purview of American order. And so a new label of criminal allowed for the same confines of the institution of slavery to persist. Simply slap them with the crime and they were your slaves again. 
This was a reality during the Great Nadir, a time period between 1877 to 1923, known as the worst period for Black Americans in the history of this country. This period was chock full of white supremacist violence. Violence surfacing through segregation, disenfranchisement, and white mobs lynching Black people in groves. Take, for instance, the story of Jesse Washington. Jesse was a 17-year-old Black boy who was accused of raping and murdering a white woman in Waco, Texas in 1916. Jesse's trial lasted all of four minutes, and after the jury of 12 white men ruled him guilty, a mob of angry white people by the thousands grabbed Jesse, tied him up with rope and chains, attached him to the back of a truck bed, and dragged him across town by the neck. After this, they burned and hanged him in the middle of town. There's a postcard to commemorate this occurrence that the white townspeople sent to family members, heralding this instance of justice. Jesse Washington's story is an example of what Dr. Carlos Hill taught me as a form of social control, a coercive mechanism to uphold and enforce social norms. In this case, the norm being upheld was that this black boy and boys like him were not deserving of life. The reality is that blackness, the state of being black has been criminalized in this country. Crime quickly became a tool of social control, labeling one as criminal and thus unleashing the horrors of the prison industrial complex allowed for the objectives of systemic oppression to reign supreme. Beth Ritchie and Andrea Ritchie defined criminalization as the social and political process by which society determines which actions or behaviors and by who will be punished by the state. At the most basic level, it involves passage and enforcement of criminal laws. While framed as neutral, decisions about what kinds of conduct to punish, how and how much are very much a choice, guided by existing structures of economic and social inequality based on race, gender, sexuality, disability, and poverty, among others. This definition allows us to see that crime is decided by those with power, most often to be inflicted harshly on those with the least amount of power. It is not a neutral arbiter of justice, but rather a tool of control and domination. For example, entire identities, not just actions, but entire identities that deviate from the mythical norm have been criminalized themselves. Laws around lewd conduct, public indecency, and loitering have been used as excuses under the discretionary purview of cops to arrest those whose gender performance does not adhere to the gender binary. For gender queer and gender fluid people, for gay men, transgender women, this has surfaced in the perpetual targeting of the bodies as quote-unquote lewd, thus warranting arrest for lewd conduct. These statutes allow for many of the same injustices the system waged against the LGBTQIA community before sodomy laws were ruled unconstitutional in the 2003 case Lawrence v. Texas to remain intact. Until the 1980s, gender performance was heavily policed through sumptuary laws which required at least three articles of clothing prescribed to the sex assigned at birth. Throughout the mid-20th century, butch lesbians faced the brunt of these laws when they would be arrested when they could not prove that they were wearing at least three articles of women's clothing. In this case, these laws were quite literally regulating gender. And if you were targeted, having violated these stringent gender rules, you would be arrested. 
These laws explicitly prohibited cross-dressing and were a direct catalyst in the continued repression the queer and trans community has faced at the hands of the law. These laws, of course, had the harshest consequences for BIPOC queer and trans people, drawing on a long history of viewing Black women as not fitting neatly into societal standards of womanhood and femininity. Queer injustice is a troubling look into this long history of the criminalization of LGBTQ plus people in the U.S. I'd highly recommend you dig into it to learn more. The crisis of criminalization is likely most stark as it relates to poverty. Countless reports have outlined the targeting of black and brown people in poor communities for low-level offenses, slapping them with ridiculous fines and fees they cannot afford, and keeping them in cycles of incarceration and probation as a result. No one is safer as a result of this process. No one is safer as a result of this process. And I think that's an important point to make because we've been told all of this money that we funnel into the prison system, all of this money that we funnel into courts and to police forces, that the system keeps us safe, that the system keeps us separated from quote unquote bad people. This is especially important for white listeners to understand because this idea of public safety, of course, centers whiteness, of course, centers the quote unquote safety of a white supremacist order. And so we have to ask ourselves if we're any more safe as a result of this system. There are, of course, private and I believe social interests in this phenomenon continuing. We reside in the wealthiest country in the world, and yet poverty is abound. Millions live below the poverty line, unable to make ends meet, while this country spends billions on anything other than meeting those needs. This is the reality that capitalism leaves us. Capitalism takes central the need for an exploited class, a slave class, to ensure that the ruling class makes the most amount of profit off of their backs. By criminalizing poverty and funneling poor people into the system, there remains an ability for next to free labor within prison walls. There are also still too many laws on the books essentially making it illegal to be homeless. Whether ruling panhandling to be illegal, or cities not allowing houseless people to sleep on public benches, there's a real problem of states using criminality to quote unquote fix these problems. The issues remain. They are just temporarily removed from that public space. As Dr. Angela Y. Davis tells us, the prison does not disappear social problems. It disappears human beings. My argument here is not to say that bad things do not happen, that people don't steal or rape or kill, my argument is that trying to solve these problems with criminalization and state surveillance is not only repressive, but also illogical. It simply doesn't work. Ask yourself, all the money poured into the prison and its institutional subsidiaries, if you feel any safer. This system does not prevent violence. It does not stop violence. It only perpetuates it. If the proverbial crime is so bad in Chicago and the resident to cop ratio is one of the highest in the country, why does crime persist there? I'll give you a hint. It's not because black Chicagoans are any more prone to violence than any other citizens. Because cops don't prevent crime, they respond to it. 
I argue, and many advocates across the country argue that we should find another response, one that centers humanity, dignity, and true justice. I'm a prison industrial complex abolitionist. I believe that if this, the richest country in the world, were to ensure that all its residents were able to live what Mayim Kaba calls a dignified life, had a culturally relevant and well-resourced pre-K through 12th grade education, a livable wage, housing, healthcare, and access to nourishing food, that much of the social problems we have criminalized and thrown the criminal legal system at would not need to be labeled crime because they simply would not happen. Criminalizing trauma responses and mental illness is wrong and does not work. This process should stop. In addition, we should move beyond the fear-mongering that is rooted in the prison system. We are scared of one another because systems of oppression tell us to be. We act on these systems when we continue to peddle ideas around crime ravaging urban communities. Crime is not the problem. Institutions with endless means not meeting the needs of the people is the problem. We should move beyond fear and beyond crime and humanize one another and work diligently to demand the state provide people with their basic necessities. That's the human thing to do, and that's the right thing to do. If you need an alternative to the use of crime, which is packed with racist, classist, and ableist undertones, harm and wrongdoing are terms that transformative justice practitioners utilize when addressing violence in their communities without the state. For more on this shift, I encourage you to check out transformharm.org, Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, and the Restorative Justice Institute of Oklahoma. A piece of what I am calling for is a simple language shift, a paradigm shift of sorts, but it is also a policy shift to move to decriminalize and decarcerate and to build up the structures that actually prevent harm and violence from occurring in the first place. Power to you all, keep dreaming of something better. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Liberating Minds. Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, foundationforliberatingminds.org, our social media pages at Foundation4LM, and consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon, patreon.com slash foundation4LM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.